You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to TFM's Local Watering Hole. That's right, we're here at episode 400, the official 400th episode, and I am so excited to have with me Christy Morris. There's a shark in the watering hole. Oh, not again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, we are going to have a blast this week. Uh, We are so excited, you know, we already... uh, we had to miss last week, but so we had an episode already come out this week. We talked about Avatar for three ninety nine, and this week we are going to talk about the original blockbuster Jaws, which I think is going to be super fun. Uh, before we get into anything else, though, of course, uh, make sure that you are following us on social media. We'd love to interact with you there at the six hundred two Club on Twitter. And on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. And of course, uh, next week we're doing a drawing uh, for a couple of posters. So hopefully we'll get some people who will review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you review and rate us, we'll read out your reviews on the show and we'll pick a winner. And you could win the Avatar poster from the recent release as well as Top Gun Maverick, biggest movie of the year so far. And then, of course, you could find us wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you're subscribed and you'll get the show as soon as it drops. We also want to encourage you to go uh, and check us out online at Trek FM or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. Of course, we've also got the listeners only discussion group you can join called the Babel Conference. And uh, we really encourage you to help out the network by go over by going over to Patreon, and that way you can support the network and make sure that all of these shows keep coming to you each and every week. Uh, and so, uh, Christy, you know, um, in lieu of at the end of the show, we normally give some recommendations, but we thought that this week it would be kind of fun uh, to talk a little bit. You know, we've done this the official 400th episode. We've had uh, a few more than that, of course, because we had some supplementals uh, along the way. But number 400 means it's definitely time to talk a little bit about uh, just 400 episodes. And uh, so, you know, you've been with the show for quite a while now. And so first, I was just wondering, uh, was there any episode or movie that we've talked about that really sticks out in your mind as like, oh, man, I just remember that one. And that was one of my favorites. So um, I don't know that I remember a favorite, just one favorite. Um, there's a lot of favorites, which is a good thing to say. Um, I remember my first one was Passengers. Yes, I remember that. Yes. Yep. Yes. Um, And then the first Bond film that I came in on was to talk about my favorite Bond film and my favorite Bond, Sean Connery, um, in Diamonds Are Forever with you and John Champion. And then subsequently the remaining ones. Your favorite Bond film. (laughs) And you'll never let me live it down. 
<laughs> oh man, that's so funny. No, that's um yeah, I do I was just thinking you you being there on passengers, I cannot believe that that was all the way back in January of twenty seventeen. Yeah. I mean how many years now? Five? Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. I, I mean it just like, it's crazy. So what number would that have been? Uh, I feel like I've been on that, like half the episodes then. Yeah, that episode was episode uh, 113. So, so I've been on over um, 200. Well, for the most part, yeah, because not all um, of them, I guess. I'm, yeah, um, because I, I know you, uh, we came on as co-host a little bit after that. And um, so, but yeah, I mean, You've been on so many of these episodes, and it's honestly just been, to me, it's been a real blast to have you on the show uh, and to have a partner in crime in this. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I'm speechless as the fact that it's been that long because it doesn't feel like it's been that long. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's the best part. It's like, it doesn't feel like we've been doing this for five years together, but, you know, um, yeah, it's crazy. Um, What's your favorite? You know, so I've had a lot of great episodes that I've really enjoyed. Um, and I think, so there's, there's an episode all the way back in 2015 that I did with John Mills. It's the first time that John and I got together just to podcast ourselves, uh, on the 602 club. And it was one of our first supplementals, uh, it was supplemental, um, number two, actually. Uh, and we did an episode called He's George Freaking Lucas. <laughs> and so that was um, us just talking about Star Wars in general. Uh, we we kind of um, touched on a lot of different subjects in the Star Wars saga. Um, you know, talking about, you know, never being a hater of things, uh, you know, um, even if we didn't like something. Uh, you know, loving the prequels, you know, mm-hmm. all, just all of this stuff. Um, you know, it, it was it was crazy. Uh, and what was so crazy about that was that that episode led us to meeting our friend Nick Anastasio, who uh, worked uh, at that point was working at ILM, and he wrote an email uh, uh, just to say thank you for the episode. And we ended up becoming friends. And then, you know, him and John and I are great friends. We still talk all the time. Um, And, you know, that's also the episode that uh, really led John and I to connecting uh, and and becoming really good friends. And and obviously, not only so did not only that episode give me uh, an amazing friend and brother in Nick, which, again, love the guy so much. But the same thing with John. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, so this, you know. Honestly, this podcast has given me two really incredible friends, um, and it's, you know, to me that really stands out uh, because, you know, you don't normally think of a podcast or the internet. You know, we hear all the bad things about the internet, but that really um, made a difference. Uh, And, um, yeah, and then, in fact, you know, uh, later on, uh, we did an episode uh, with uh, me and John and Nick um, where he came on to talk about the Clone Wars, which was great, too. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, so those uh, to me, that's I, I guess, you know, I, I could sit here and talk all day about, you know, 
the way is in which this show that, you know, started all the way back in 2014 uh, in uh, October on the 24th, which, um, you know, can't believe that um, we're about to hit our anniversary. But, um, yeah, it's it's been an incredible ride. And so I'm just, um, I think, yeah, just incredibly thankful uh, for, for one, people listening um, and sticking with the show mm-hmm. uh, and uh, all the interaction we had with people over the years. Um, you know, the the, the things that, that um, I've been given because of the show, specifically incredible friendships um, and, you know, uh, being in podcasting, you know, led me to meet you, you and your husband as well as a bunch of other people from the Atlanta area going to Dragon Cons together. I mean, like, yeah. This show and doing this show has led to all that. So, yeah, I mean, pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. Well, and I'll piggyback on that, too, and say um, one thing I will attribute to you um, through letting me be a part of this and then also eventually becoming a co-host. You've actually made me a better listener because. OK, seriously, yeah, like, awesome. <laughs> honestly, because I used to be a really bad interrupter because I'd be so excited to make my own point about something. But with podcasting and specifically the way that you structure this show, um, it's very thoughtful and respectful of everyone's turn to speak. And waiting until they're finished. And that really helped me. So. I did want to say, like, that's something that you brought to me as well. Mm. Well, thank you. I, I mean, I definitely appreciate that. It is, um, you know, you saying that reminds me that in many ways, I, I think, even in my own personal life, like, podcasting is, has helped me in that, too, you know, uh, by making me uh, think deeply about what somebody's saying, uh, more so than what I want to say next, uh, mm-hmm. Because that's that's what active listening is is all about, and I think you're absolutely right in the sense that that type of active listening then leads to better conversations, uh, because you're actually interacting with what people are saying instead of just what you want to say, and so I really appreciate that. Um, it means a lot to hear, um, and I think that's been one of the things that I've just enjoyed. You know. Uh, you joining the show and us doing this together for so long. Obviously, you build a rapport with somebody. Um, but I, I think what I appreciate most about you is you don't see things always the way that I do. And I think that's always made for a more interesting show. And so, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. super excited. I have no idea if we'll reach the uh, 400 more. So who knows what ha- the life has in store for us. But, um, you know. Uh, we, we've got the whole rest of the year planned when we got some great stuff coming up for you. And mm-hmm. as I mentioned, Christy, uh, this week we are diving into the original blockbuster, Jaws, uh, the movie that set what the template was for the blockbuster. And of course, neither of us was alive at the time that this movie came out. And so kind of getting into the Jaws of Jaws, what was your introduction to this movie? This is one that feels so, I don't know. Um, I can't pinpoint exactly when my first viewing was, 
but knowing that I've had many viewings. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you feel the same way, but it. Um, I know that I was probably too young. Um, it's the story of my life, right? Um, but I remember in particular the scene that always stuck out to me that I remember probably from, I would say I bet my first viewing was like age 10, was when Jaws actually comes up on the boat, actually toward the end of the movie. Yeah. Because that death was, you know, particularly brutal. I guess that stuck out in my mind. But it it's definitely been many a viewing over time. And I, I don't remember when my first viewing was. What about you? Yeah, you know, so this is a this is actually a, a, a really interesting one for me because it's one of those things that I didn't see this movie until a few years ago. Um, it was one of those movies where it wasn't one that, um, you know, my parents were, uh, you know, going to let me watch back in the day. And so for me, this is not a movie that I grew up with, but I, I knew of it. You know, I mean, it's it's one of those movies that's it's just so popular. That um, you you absolutely know about it. Um, and you know, I, it, what's interesting is that, uh, as well for me, I always thought of this as being, you know, a much more of before seeing it, I always kind of thought this was much more of like a horror type of movie. And so what was fascinating for me was to see this a few years ago and really see that this movie isn't anything like that. You know, um, there is absolutely uh, a fear element in this movie, but this movie is not about being like a horror movie. Um, really, this is a movie about people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, so in a lot of ways, I'm, honest, I'm actually kind of glad that I didn't see this movie until, you know, more recently, because I feel like... I was able to react to the movie as an adult um, and and I, you know, appreciated that uh, very much uh, because I think a lot of what Steven Spielberg is doing in the film um, is much more adult, you know, Um, and a, Mm. a lot of what really makes this a next level film is that it's not really about the shark, Right. Uh, And I think that's the most amazing part of the movie. Like, I think everybody thinks of the fact that this is about the shark, but it's really not. And I think that's pretty, actually pretty impressive. So, Well, and especially for its time, right? I mean, that's the thing, too. It was groundbreaking in a lot of ways, and that was kind of a new thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. You're you're 100% right. And and, and part of that, you know, um, one of the groundbreaking things that we, we... often think of and is the idea of this being a movie about a shark. And um, there are a lot of, and and it's well-documented, you know, if you have the Blu-ray version of the movie or the uh, new 4K edition of the the film, there are actually two documentaries about the making of and the impact of Jaws. Mm. And one of the things you'll hear over and over is that there were shark problems. 
<laughs> um, and that, you know, the shark itself, uh, because just as you mentioned, you know, they're, they're trying to do something that's never been done before. Uh, and uh, Spielberg specifically is trying to do something that's never been, had never really been done before, which is, you know, shooting on the open sea and having, you know, a animatronic shark. Um, and so in many ways, the movie becomes limited in the sense of what they can do with the shark. And so, especially like looking back on that, how do you feel like that works, especially as we watch, you know, the movie today? So I think it's the same kind of situation we've said before where they did the best with what they had um, Mm -hmm. that you can tell, but not necessarily in a bad way, that they then limit the appearances of the actual shark in like a very visible shot. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's more a lot of seeing just the fin, just seeing a shadow, um, to try and redirect the attention from noticing how bad the shark actually looks. Right. And so I think that that was smart. You know, if this is all we have and we have to use it the best we possibly can, how can we kind of disguise it to look better than it is? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think you're, you're right on there. Um, And, you know, what I found is that, and 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 there are many conversations in many films about the idea of how limitations can actually spur creativity in a film mm-hmm. um and help a film to be better than if you could just do whatever you wanted um it was really interesting in one of the documentaries uh you had Spielberg talking about how you know if it was today and he was making this movie you know you would have just had a CGI shark and you would have been able to see the shark much earlier. In fact, you would have seen the shark at the beginning of the movie when it, you know, attacks Chrissy at the very start. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so there would have been a lot less suspense because I think part of the limitations of not seeing the shark from the beginning is that it actually creates more suspense because we barely ever see the shark until about two-thirds of the movie is over. And by that point, because of the suspense that's been built through music, through uh, the way the scenes are shot, through the way in which that kind of creates this paranoia, Mm -hmm. I think it pays off then and you're able to forgive the fact that the shark doesn't look amazing because you're scared of the shark by the time it pops up. Right. You know, um, and because there has, they, because of the limitations, it's actually made the shark feel more real by the time you actually see this shark. And I think that that limitation becomes a genius. Yes. And it makes all the difference because I think if this had just been one of those movies that we see today where, you know, like the Meg or something like that, just to name another movie that has sharks in it. Um, think of Blake Lively and the movie The Shallows and, you know, it's about a surfer who, uh, you know, finds herself uh, stranded uh, with this great white 
uh, circling around and she's like on this buoy or something and it's it's not a bad movie at all. It's actually pretty good. Uh, but the shark is not a great CGI shark. And so when you finally see it, it kind of, I don't know, it takes you out a little bit. Um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, I just, I was so struck by, especially rewatching this film, about how the, the, the limitations of the shark itself create the need for, for you to find a way to build tension and paranoia without ever seeing the shark. And then, of course, too, the way that the film is edited, even when the shark is there, makes all the difference, too. Right. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think you said everything that was on my mind. I'm sitting here nodding unanimously. <laughs> right. Such good podcasting. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no one can hear it, but I'm nodding. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, you're right. It it's it becomes the thing that spurs innovation, that causes them to think of everything that they're doing in a new way and figure out a way to fix the problem of not having the great shark. And it actually makes it so much better to where it, it reminds you of the way mm-hmm. that people would do things later intentionally that way to try and get the same effect right. of like, well, we clearly realized that it built better tension doing it this way. And this is who started mm-hmm. it. So, yep. yeah. I, I, and I think it's great that you mentioned also the way it was, it was filmed and edited because I wanted to call out, there's two times that I can think of for sure where they did a type of shot. I don't recall seeing before and possibly since, but it was where they did manual zoom on the camera as well as moving the camera physically closer. So for example, the scene where um, Roy Scheider is sitting on the beach and um, tells the guy Mm -hmm. great hat. Yeah. Yes. It zooms in on his face. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So there were some things like that as well that were new and created tension in a different way. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I I think that's a fantastic observation. Um, And I also, I was thinking of another way in which they kind of, you know, uh, get over the shark problem, but I think they create real tension is is utilizing the barrels, you know. Um, And because you don't have to see the shark, but you know that the shark is there. And it's such a perfect way to overcome the limitation of the shark, but at the same time, allow the audience to be reminded that the shark is actually there without having to see it. And it's in the area. And I think, you know, again, all of these things do exactly what you want because this movie doesn't work. If there isn't that sense of paranoia and a foreboding mm-hmm. and tension of when is the shark going to pop up? You know, you think of all the scenes where it's edited, where people are swimming and everything and whether or not the shark is going to be there or not. And it's the music and the way things are shot and just the, the the terror that it creates there. And all of that comes from the the way they've been building the entire film and because you actually haven't really seen the shark. And so mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, it isn't going to happen. And I was going to say to you, the filming from underneath people in the water. Mm-hmm. It's definitely it, always that fear of the unknown that can scare people mm. more than yeah. the actual thing yes. itself. Yep. I think that's a great way to put it. 
I, yeah. Yeah. I think that really encapsulates it. The, the fear of the unknown. Um, and, and of course then, you know, this innate fear of like, okay, well what we know what sharks can do if they attack, you know? Mm -hmm. So you put all that together. It's like, well, I've got the unknown and then kind of what I think is the known. And you put those two together and it's a very dangerous potion, uh, to give the people. So Mm -hmm. no, I love that. You, you mentioned something, this idea of like, you know, the way that you had some of those zooms and everything happen. I think there's a real uh, realism to the film as well. Uh, you know, Spielberg shooting on Martha's Vineyard to create Amity. You know, he is shooting on the Atlantic. It's like one of the first times that an actual movie placed at sea has been filmed at sea, uh, you know, and not just a large tank. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that those are things to which really add to the visceral nature of this film because you could feel the salt spray when they're on the boat. Uh, you know, you can feel the, um, the, the reality of this town, you know, the ferry coming in and offloading a bunch of people for the... Fourth of July celebrations coming to the beach and everything like and, you know, you're you're outside all the time. So the lighting is is it's all natural. It, it, everything just feels so real. And I think that this really adds to the movie in a way that could never have happened if you didn't feel film on the ocean and you didn't film in a real place, a place that, you know, the beauty of Martha's Vineyard is nothing's changed there since like the 1800s. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it feels so, it, it, it feels so kind of timeless, timeless Americana. And it just gives this place, this reality to which it it almost feels like it could be anywhere on the Eastern seaboard. Yeah. They did a great job of picking a place that is generic enough to then be able to make that work. And like you said, it feels like it could be any place. But then definitely you would never have gotten the same effect if it was on a set with a tank or using a CGI shark even. I mean, obviously, they didn't use a real shark here. People could have actually died um, if they did that. But using filming on location does so much for a movie. And then especially here, you can feel the boat tipping at the end. You know, you're not just seeing it, but it's the the way that it's done altogether. You feel like you're in the scene. And I think that it also really comes across as well when they have all of the people that suddenly immediately want to go and chase down the bounty and get the shark brought in. You know, I, I love that scene that they are showing them all on top of each other and then someone's even throwing fireworks into the the ocean beside (laughs) them. Dynamite. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That that's the kind of thing that could happen. It does. Mm -hmm. It it feels real because it is real, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great point. Um, I I, I 100% agree with you, you know. And uh, another thing that I think really helps the film in its realism is the fact that a lot of the extras are just extras from Martha's Vineyard. They're people who live there. Mm-hmm. So they are real people, you know, 
going about basically their real lives, you know, um, and in the, you know, people in the background, you know, even, uh, even some of those fishermen that we see, you know, those are all people who are just from Martha's Vineyard. And I think mm-hmm. it, it, it adds to this sense that we're in a real place and that this could really happen, you know, of course, until you get to the massive shark, you know, yeah. uh, jumping up on a boat and everything. But, you know, other than that, I, I think there's such a beautiful, real feeling to this movie and Spielberg should be very much praised, I think, for his choice to film there, make sure he films on location. And, you know, I know Spielberg talks about how this movie, he still has basically nom flashbacks to this film about just how bad the filming was. And like he'll wake up in the middle of the night and and having a dream that he was on the fourth day of shooting. This movie shoots for like over 100 days. Um, wow. You know, so, you know, it's it it cost the crew and it cost Spielberg a lot mentally. I mean, he almost had a breakdown at the end of this film the same way Lucas did, if, you know, the end of filming the original Star Wars. And so uh, this movie really took it out of him. And yet again, I think those choices are what help create a really special film. Um, and I think it might be some of the things that, you know, help this movie continue to be something people go back to. So, Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned earlier that I I feel like this movie is actually really about characters and you end up with these three main characters, Brody and Quint and Hooper. And, you know, I, I think everything kind of revolves around them and who they are. And, you know, first with Brody, um, Rob Scheider is, you know, somebody where he wasn't their first choice, you know, uh, they had wanted Robert Duvall and, you know, yeah, he wasn't interested in playing the character of Brody, uh, Charlton Heston, you know, thought that he would be a good a person for this role, but I think Spielberg maybe rightly decided uh, he would bring too much persona to the role. And, you know, I, I was struck rewatching this film, just how good Scheider is at playing the everyman. Like mm-hmm. he's just a guy trying to do the right thing for everybody in the town and for his family. And, I love his performance in this film. I love it. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it doesn't work, honestly, without him. I think that he, well, I'll tell you where I also remember him from, actually, more than this even. I don't think you can make this without him. And I think of this movie first when I think of him. But second, I remember him also from Sequest. So for me, he was already... Um, kind of a captain as well from having seen that with my dad. And so I think of him constantly as that like hero, captain, leader, figure, the good guy. Um, And that's why I feel like he was made for this role as well. He just brings that across so well. And a performance of a guy who is 
getting the worst hand and having to figure out how to handle everything and then blamed for anything that goes wrong. And he's like, you know, I I really feel for him, especially in the scene with the woman whose son died, slapping him across the face and telling him it's his fault because Mm -hmm. he knew that he should have and he wanted to and felt like he had to play ball with whatever the leaders in the town wanted instead and resisted his better judgment in the first place. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that is unfortunately the role a lot of leaders get stuck in is at some point you have to make a call and sometimes it's not the right call. I really, I really liked where you were taking that, you know, just him being this kind of weary guy, you know, we know from the film that they used to live in New York and they had moved from New York because New York had turned into a cesspool of crime. Mm-hmm. That sounds familiar. <laughs> um, and um, they'd moved here because, you know, they wanted, uh, you know, a slower life, you know, a, a better life for him and his family, his his boys, his wife. Um, and, you know, I don't think he ever expected to have this situation happen to him at all. And, you know, he's thrust into this place where he has to be making these decisions. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, he he knows what the right thing to do is, and yet he lets himself be pushed around a little bit by everybody else because the decision he has to make is going to be an unpopular one. Mm-hmm. And that is a very hard place to be when you're going to be the one who has to make the decision that people are going to hate, but it's actually the best thing. Right. And and in the end, too, like the movie justifies his original position, which is to close the beaches, because he was right. It was a shark attack. And people were going to die if they were allowed to continue swimming in the ocean and this shark was not caught. Um, And so I love that the movie, you know, does play that out. And I think, you know, he's just fantastic in this role. But I I think what makes him actually really, really good is the interactions he has with his family, you know, with his wife and with his boys um, it feels so real and so genuine, and I think everything about his performance is something that uh, the more I've seen the movie, the more I respond to, because talking about the realism earlier, there's such a realism to the way Scheider plays this role. Yes. It just feels natural, and... um. And I, I and I also appreciate that, you know, for him as a character, this whole movie too becomes about him overcoming his own fears to do what's best for everyone involved, right? He has to overcome his own fears of being on the water in the first place uh, to um, hunt down this shark so that it's not attacking anybody else. And so, you know, I, I just, uh, it, it's... It's such a fantastic performance. Yeah, I, I couldn't have honestly seen a different actor, although I love Robert Duvall and Charlton Heston. I do think that you needed someone that was going to be a little softer 
and be able to bring exactly what you said, especially I think of the scene with him and his son at the dinner table when he's not noticing that his son is mimicking every move he makes. Yeah, so great. And then he finally says, give us a kiss. And he says, why? And he says, because I really need it. And you just feel in that moment, really him playing that softness of a father who genuinely loves and is dedicated to his family and just wants to protect them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and an, a man who is struggling with the weight of the office he carries, mm-hmm. which is the police chief and keeping this, this whole town safe and not only the town, but all the people who are going to be supposedly visiting for the holidays, right. you know? And so, no, I think he's just phenomenal. Um, well, Quint is played by Robert Shaw, uh, who, you know, was also uh, in a Bond movie and um, played that incredible role of the villain in From Russia with Love. Uh, mm-hmm. Great, you know, train scene with, with Bond, with that huge fight they had. And what's interesting is they originally wanted Lee Marvin uh, who people would know from uh, the Dirty Dozen, and I, I just I think that they cast the right person here. I think Robert Shaw does such a good job of playing eccentric, hmm. and um, and yet then becoming the person that we can understand why he is the way he is when he tells that story about what happened to him, you know, with the USS Indianapolis. Uh, I think, I mean, again, he's, um, with Scheider, you know, he really plays this role to the hilt and it's, it's, it's not over the top or anything. It's just, especially when you learn that that's his story, you really feel the again the reality of this character and that he of course would be a little bit eccentric having survived what he did uh and then seeing this happen again um you know these shark attacks happening uh and his you know hatred of sharks i mean it's just it's so good yeah he <laughs> i feel like that scene is the titular thing of the whole movie for him obviously because just having the camera focused on his face and watching him speak he's able to make you picture the entire event on the Indianapolis in your head and feel like you were there with him and that's just him him talking on camera alone so the man can definitely do any role justice purely based off of that in my opinion and he also gets across just how too he can have that goofy side of, you know, I, I was even joking with my husband, the scene where they're loading up the boat finally for he and Hooper and Brody are loading up the boat to go out together and actually go after the shark. And he's cussing like a sailor and telling that awful joke to Brody's wife. <laughs> um, It just is so typical of what you think of as like a guy who spends way too much time on the fishing boat and and then he can also go to playing that super serious scene where you feel like my god the man has been through hell and back 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, he he was absolutely the right choice. Yeah, no, I I heartily agree with you, and and I think part of that too is that you know that speech that you mentioned. Uh, he actually rewrote the speech, which had been rewritten by John Milius from the original script. Uh, so he's the third person to make that speech happen, and he rewrites it in a way that he can perform it in an adequate amount of time. And I just think, you know, it's so clear that he understood who this character was and exactly what he needed to do to portray it on screen. And I mean, you know, the fact that he gets to go out in that blaze of glory uh, with the the shark there stabbing it in the head, you know, it, it feels, you know, like such uh, poetry that, that, you know, he had survived the, the shark attacks there after the Indianapolis was destroyed. And, you know, to go out with this massive shark, it, it just... It creates this sense of of uh, poetry. Um, also, interesting thing too, you know, the USS Indianapolis story was something that only had been recently declassified, um, and oh. uh, so a lot of people found out about what had happened to the Indianapolis through this movie. Oh wow! Um, which is fascinating too. So, uh, because that story is one hundred percent true, that's exactly what happened, uh, and. Um, so to be able to utilize that to create to this character, I think just perfect writing and, and then it becomes perfect casting. And so, um, you know, Richard Dreyfus was not their first choice for Hooper as well. Um, they had thought about a bunch of different uh, people, Voight, uh, John Voight, Kevin Klein, Timothy Bottoms, Jeff Bridges, all people that were considered... Um, and I thought it was really fascinating that it was Lucas, George Lucas, who suggested Dreyfus because of, you know, him being an American graffiti and he gets the role. And I mean, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but I think what's great about him is the way in which, you know, each one of these guys represents a different part of, of American life, right? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Scheider is kind of the everyman. Robert Shaw is kind of like the burly man, you know, the warrior. And then Dreyfus is kind of like the brain. Mm-hmm. And so you have these different aspects of of American malehood. Um, and each one of them is, is a man. And yet they show the variations uh, on what it means to be a man. There's there's different things that, that make up men. And I think Dreyfus just really nails the role beautifully uh, and especially since, you know, a lot of the story from the book gets cut out for him because there's like an affair that happens between he and Brody's wife um, and things like that. And so a lot of that stuff got cut out and, you know, um, they pare it down. But to me, I don't ever really feel that with Dreyfus's performance or what they do with Matt Hooper. I feel like I'm glad they didn't do all that stuff because I feel like we got the best of the character then. Um, and he, you know, was a likable character. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, if he had had an affair with Brody's wife, I really would have been like, I don't like this guy. 
Right. Like then what would ever endear him to Brody? And that's such a right, big part exactly. of this. And that, yeah, I'm definitely glad that they left that out. I didn't know that piece <laughs> was part of the original story. But yeah, because I think that the whole reason that they're able to bond in the first place is that Brody is looking for anyone to believe him that this is such a huge threat as it is. And he's kind of out of his element with knowing about sharks in general and their habits and what, you know, species of shark this might be or anything. And so that's why he reaches out to Hooper and, you know, is not expecting the height and uh, type of guy that appears before him as the expert, but mm -hmm. respects him immediately because he's like, he knows the knowledge that I need. And then invites him yep. into his home for dinner. And the more that they talk, they realize that they have an understanding and that mm -hmm. they have a lot in common, even if they're very different people. Yeah, I mean, I think the greatness of uh, Dreyfus's performance there, and it, it, I think you're absolutely right in saying how it reinforces Brody in the sense that they're both looking for the truth and then willing to go where the truth takes them. So if the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, the shark that got caught wasn't the right one, you know, they're willing to ask those questions and then live with the answers and then do what they need to do in light of those answers. Um, and instead of, you know, uh, sweep it under the rug. And, and I, I think, I know for Dreyfus, I think that it, it really fits with his personality, you know, just yeah. kind of who he is as a, as a person and everything is. And, and so, yeah, I think this is, um, a really, the, 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 I think the beauty of this film is that it was so well cast that you don't really, and you can't really see anybody else playing these roles and the movie really being the same. And right. that's that's a really important thing for any movie, I think, to be able to have. You know, um, there are times when you can be watching a movie and you're like, oh, I could see anybody doing this role. Uh, and with this one, I feel like Spielberg just made excellent choices, especially with these three cast members, as well as the entire cast here, uh, to create a movie that um, it... It felt cohesive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and Dreyfus, I will add it because I didn't focus enough on it. It was so funny that he was this great being so early in his career. This was only the second major film he had done. And yet he was able to get across so much weight in his performance and really could, could bounce off of Scheider and Shaw so well and I think that it also being such a focus on a a few important characters and more about them than the shark did so much for making it a better story because it's about how these three stories interweave and mm, right and like you said it's more about the people than the shark yeah I mean I I, I think the you saying that the the quintessential scene in that is huh, anyway the quintessential anyway, <laughs> sorry uh 
is those three guys connecting there on the boat, especially mm-hmm. as, you know, Hooper and Quint compare uh, their scars. And, you know, it's such a great scene. Uh, and to see how those guys come together in that. And yes, they're very different people, but I think that scene specifically allows them to be able to kind of see each other in a light that they hadn't before which mm-hmm. creates this respect it's just such a it's it's so well done so right like um sorry there's only other thing one other thing i wanted to add that's why i love for example how initially quint is really really giving hooper a hard time and making him feel like you don't know what you're talking about you're just a brain that has no actual experience i've been in the middle of battle you know with a shark kind of thing and then finally all of Quint's plans are slowly one by one not working out. And he's supposed to be the, you know, one with all this experience. I love that he finally looks at Hooper and he holds up the, uh, um, what is it? Like the stick or whatever, the pole. And he's like, how do these mm-hmm. work again? And it's like yes. his begrudging way of saying, okay, my plans didn't work. I guess we could try yours. <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely agree with you. So uh, one of the things that uh, you said, Christy, and we were kind of alluding to uh, with the, uh, the the way in which you know Brody and Hooper connect uh, is in their pursuit of the truth. And you know, I, I was really struck by the way that this movie kind of plays with the idea of selective facts or you know, uh, playing loose with the truth and, and the idea that, you know, you have, uh, you've got the mayor, uh, Mayor Vaughn, who is worried about what this is going to do uh, to the town's bottom line um, and the businesses and everything if, you know, the shark it turns out to be real. Um, and yet, the way in which people in power will use selective facts to kind of get what they want. And what was so interesting here is, is that, you know, if they had just done the right thing from the beginning, then they may have been able to have the beach open by the 4th of July and people wouldn't have died. Right. Other people, you know, Chrissy would have died. That was unavoidable because that's where we get introduced to the idea that the shark is there. But yeah, I was just really struck by that. And because it it creates this thing to which, you know, we just see all over our world still happening with with people in power playing loose and fast with facts. And I put that in quotations, um, you know, so that they can get what they want mm-hmm. regardless of the cost to others. It really is sad because you can, you can understand a little bit, of course, that their main source of revenue for this town is the tourists. And, you know, if that's how they're supposed to make money and suddenly they've got no money, what are they supposed to do for the rest of the year to try and recoup that? However, it's putting that above human life that is the problem, that it's people that are willing to ignore the right thing in order to 
get personal gain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where they end yep. up getting themselves in trouble and then second guessing doing the right thing later on when it's staring them clear in the face when they say, that's not the shark. That's just a big shark that was also in this area. And the mayor is still mm-hmm. saying, well, let's not jump to conclusions. It could be the shark. And it's like he yeah. still doesn't want to believe that it may be wrong and that he needs to continue closing the beaches and looking further into this. He wants to take the easy way out mm-hmm. and protect his bottom yep. line. Well, and it, it just goes to show how doing the right thing is almost always the best thing, even PR-wise, you know, mm-hmm. just telling the truth. And, you know, because what ends up happening to Amity uh, could have been much worse in the sense that this could just become known as Shark City and nobody would want to come there, you know? So is the is the choice to stay open and risk more people dying or just going ahead and closing and making sure you get the shark and then opening again. I mean, the question about which is better there, it seems like a no brainer that the, you should close. Right. So that you don't become known as this place that, you know, people go to die or that you get find out later, hid the truth and everyone finds out yep. that you're a liar. <laughs> I mean, that yep. that's so much worse than just owning up to it in the first place and saying, I don't right. know whether or not this is going to continue to be a problem, but I'm going to do the right thing versus I'm going to lie and say everything's fine. Everyone, please go get in the water. And then I sent people to their death. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, the answer of I'm sure it's fine is not the way to go. Right. Uh, <laughs> because the, it's not. It's not fine. And so... um. Yeah, I just, I was really struck by that. And I thought it was really interesting to see the way in which that plays out here in the film. And just mm-hmm. sadly to be seeing that still play out across our world all the time. Uh, obviously, this movie is very famous for many reasons. And one of those reasons is the masterful score of John Williams. Um, and in fact, this is the movie which gives us not only John Williams' Jaws, but will lead to him being recommended to George Lucas so he can do Star Wars. And so not only does this movie kick off the blockbuster here for Jaws, but it helps create blockbusters in the future, which is, I think, pretty incredible. And so... You know, I don't know what we could say about the the soundtrack of Jaws that hasn't been said before, Mm -hmm. but it truly is a phenomenal score and one of the best of all time. And I will piggyback on that, that the thing I respect the most about how this was done and how he works as a composer is that he understands what is memorable as well as what fits the situation. Mm-hmm. So it's not yes. forgettable. Like we said, the music from Avatar was, you know, fine, but didn't have like a central theme that you're humming. 
whereas mm-hmm. this came out in 1975 and we still know those two notes and know exactly where it came from and exactly where it yep. started. Yep. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. And and I think one of the things is is that not only, and, and again, uh, you know, this isn't anything new, but the way the music creates the suspense that you need, which is beautiful. But I also think his choice of using pirate adventure like music for when the guys are on the ship mm-hmm. and you know good things are happening uh creates this sense of epic adventure which transcends the movie to a whole new level you know uh and even even spielberg said uh that and has admitted for him he does not believe that this movie would have been half as good without John Williams' touch. And, you know, I, I, how can you argue with Spielberg there? Yeah, no, you can't. I mean, and I'm so glad you brought that up, too, about the different touches that made it more of an adventure here and there, because I recognized that actually on this time around, in particular when Brody is climbing up to the top of the mast as it's mm-hmm. sinking. Yeah. To try and, you know, do another problem solve. Um, You can tell it's applied in the right places so that you're feeling that at the right Mm -hmm. moment and and that you have hope in that scene and that it's not all is lost. Yeah, no, I 100 percent agree with you. And and, I mean, it's just it's one of those things where, you know, so much has been said about the score of this movie. And and in all all honesty, so much has been said about this movie in general. Mm -hmm. But I I think, you know, we would be remiss to not touch on the fact that part of the reason this movie is successful is because in what it does. And we were talking about all the limitations, you know, one of the ways that this movie is able to overcome the limitations is because that John Williams score doesn't make you feel like there are any limitations. Right. You know, it actually creates exactly what you need. And so I think that's really fantastic. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to see just kind of what they did with the restoration process of this, uh, to put it in 4k, but I was really stunned by, um, the painstaking work that they put into preserving this movie, not only on film, but to create the 4k presentation, which is breathtaking in the way in which they worked to make this movie look better than it even had. And I think I got to give it to universal for the way in which they worked very diligently to make sure that, Jaws was preserved for years to come, um, but that, you know, by putting it out in this format, honestly, even Spielberg himself has said this movie didn't even look this good when it was out in the theater, you know, in 1975. Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, I think, obviously, I don't think you can watch it in 4K without a 4K TV, so I didn't watch it in 4K. It's true. It's true. um, I uh, I did get to watch it on Vudu in HD, and so I could see some of that. Um, and it is really impressive the difference that you can see side by side, and mm-hmm. it, and obviously, like in general, you can tell when it was filmed because of that kind of sheen it has on the shots. Um, but you can't tell as much, obviously, with the new version. So. I was also impressed even yeah. just with the HD version. 
Yeah, no, I, I um, and uh, the 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 HD version that would be shown now too comes from uh what they did with the restoration. Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, it, you're you're absolutely right. Like I, I think it's it's great because uh, it just holds up for. Uh, years to come and you know it, it was just so neat uh, there's a quick documentary on the 4k disc it might even be somewhere probably on youtube you could find but you could see all the painstaking work that they did put into this you know um to, to clean up the original negative in the first place to uh you know erase scratches where needed uh, to help with some some color correction and things like that to make the movie as consistent as beautiful as possible uh, and you know, the fact that Spielberg is so happy with it, uh, just lets you know just how good of a job they did. So, you know, I, I, it's just something that I think, you know, when we're looking at these older films and, uh, they have done such work, I think it's definitely worth praising them and especially if it's been done as well as this has been. So, um, well, Christy, I wanted to ask you just before we got to the ratings for this, this movie continues to have an incredible legacy and it continues to be a movie that people watch and that people like. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts of why do you think Jaws continues to endure now and and, and people seem to still be responding to it? Well, I will definitely say that it has the benefit of being something that's timeless in as far as it could happen at any point in history and it's still relevant, mm. Mm. even though it was kind of obvious what year it was filmed in. I mean, I just mean, you know, like shark attacks are still a thing. Mm-hmm. So I like that piece of it. And I think that's definitely something that keeps people coming back to it. And it also capitalizes on a common fear. Like we were saying, you know, it's not just the fear of, you know, possibly sharks but just the fear of the unknown and that i would argue that most people especially if they're swimming in the ocean for the first time there is that fear of like what is underneath Mm -hmm. me right now i don't really know (laughs) yeah um a hundred percent and it's such a massive expanse of all of that as well and you're just going well let's hope for the best um and people do it all the time so i think it's got those things and and then this this movie, obviously, throughout all of the points that we made, it's the perfect storm of things that came together in the best way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It had to have the best cast and the best music in spite of its budget and its rinky-dinky shark. Yeah. No, I I agree with... Uh, I, I think... I think that this movie continues to hold up and continues to have the legacy it does where people want to continue to watch it uh, and people continue to respond to it because it's a human story, Mm -hmm. not a shark story. And I think, like you said, there's a timelessness to it to which the experiences that these people are going through are the same experiences that we kind of have today in the sense of, we talked about the idea of, of facing what's happening and and hunting it down, you know, like and doing the right thing regardless of the cost. You know, all of these type of things are things to which this movie speaks to 
And it's a very human story. It's a very um, important story. And um, I really appreciate that about this film. And I think that's why it stands the test of time, because there is just something that is intrinsically accessible about this movie um, because it's not about, you know, just a chasing a shark. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, really impressive um, that Spielberg understood that this is more about the way the situation is impacting the people than it is about anything else. And so I, I love it for that. And so I'm really interested because I feel like we've probably had nothing but effusive praise for this film so far. Um, what would you rate? Jaws. So for some reason in the past, I had said it was a four out of five. I don't know why. Because the more that I have watched it and seen the behind the scenes things and obviously have the massive respect that I do for Spielberg and for mm -hmm. um, John Williams. It, this is a perfect movie because it also, although it's not a big budget movie, it also really was that time when magic was happening in a sense of, you know, it, it took all of these things coming together in the right way for it to be what it is now and to last. And yeah, like we were talking about with the, the problem solving about not having the greatest animatronic shark to use. It just was a different time as well for movie making where I feel like it was forced creativity that ended up being better for it. The same way that things happened with the first star Wars movie for Lucas um, and that's why this works so well and why I have so much respect for them and, and for this movie. So, of course, I give it a five out of five. You know, I, I think um, this movie is, to me, uh, I, I believe when I looked back at my Letterboxd rating, uh, I think it was a four out of five. And then I rewatched it and I was like, no, this is just a five. Yeah. I mean, this is an a, a almost perfect film, you know, and... Part of that is the way in which they overcome some difficulties to create a movie that is probably better than if they had the ability to just, you know, do whatever they wanted to do. Right. And so I, right there with you, I believe this to be one of the best movies out there. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's understandable why this movie became the first blockbuster. You know, it it gave you spectacle in a way that movies before that just hadn't. Uh, and it, it just puts you in the middle of, of something crazy and with adventure ridden. And it was just, it was just fantastic. So, um, I a hundred percent, uh, agree with you this is a five out of five stars so uh well christy before we get out of the 400th episode uh if people you know wanted to catch up with you uh see what else you've got going on just talk to you in general where could they find you 
Well, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And when I'm not here, you know, I also did a podcast that is a closed show called Sabres and Spells over on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And uh, you can find me on Facebook in the Babel Conference as well. So I hope you will check us out on there. Uh, where can they find you? Well, uh, you could find me all over the place uh, under the name MountRushing02. That's Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero. I'm all on all of those platforms. Uh, you, you can also find me here on the TFM Network doing a bunch of different shows outside the 602 Club, literary treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek. We've also got The Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, Saddle Up about Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and The Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard. I'm over on the Nerd Party Network doing a couple of different shows. Uh, one's completed. I did that with Dre Kaufman. It's called Owl Post. We talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And then John Mills and I do Aggressive Negotiations, which is an absolute blast. It is a Star Wars podcast. Uh, and so, you know, uh, before we get out of here for the 400th episode, I'd like to say we would love to hear from you. 400 episodes and more to come. We'd just love to talk to you. So again, hit us up on social media at uh, the 602 Club on Twitter or on Instagram at 602 Club TFM. Please let us know what have been your favorite shows. Um, let us know you actually listen to the show all the way by letting us know that on Twitter. That's that's a call out for you. Uh, yeah. If uh, you're listening right now, please hit us up on Twitter. Let us know what have been your favorite episodes. But as always, thank you so much for joining us and that's some bad hat harry <laughs>